the year was 1977. I was a student at Wheaton College. And I was sitting in a class by one of my favorite professors. His name was Robert Weber. A few years prior to that, the movie The Exorcist had come out. The topic that we were studying in that theology class was demonology. So you can imagine some of the conversation. And admittedly, lots of skepticism. Dr. Weber, conservative, orthodox, straight arrow, hilarious storyteller, Doc, as many of us referred to him, in the midst of the discussion and the conversation and some of the skepticism, got really serious. And he looked out at us and he said, let me tell you a story. He proceeded to explain to us that one night probably a year or two before, I forget exactly how long it had been, he received a call from a man in his congregation asking that he come and check on his daughter. So Doc went out late night, wee hours of the morning, knocked on the door, and the father obviously in great distress said, my daughter is in the bedroom, would you go check on her? And Dr. Weber was telling us the whole while, this this is just really weird. I don't get calls like this, but this man was a dear friend. and, And so into the bedroom I went, and I will spare you all of the frightening details, except for a couple of things that he said to us after he had gone into the room. He said, I walked into the room and there was a presence there that was real, that was dark, that was powerful. And I was frightened to death. Proceeded to tell us the story and how ultimately God chose to give him victory in exorcising a demon from this young woman. So then, in his usual way, he crossed his arms, leaned back against the desk, and said, Now, you all can think what you want about this stuff, but I'm here to tell you, it's real. And it's powerful. And it is potentially very frightening. I would guess that, that most, if not all of us, and I don't know all of your stories, would agree with Doc's conclusion. Spiritual warfare is real. I mean, we believe it, right? We know it's out there. And though we may not have had an experience like my prof described to us, 
because the Bible talks about it and gives examples of it, we, we do believe that it exists. But I find myself wondering if it might be possible that, that more of us could use an experience like that to awaken us to just how seriously real it is. Because I give mental assent to it all the time, and perhaps you can relate. But I'm not sure I live my daily life with a sense of just how serious it is. Scott Simon is a journalist for NPR, and I was reading a story by him earlier this week. He says he's always made it a point to avoid using the word evil when covering terrible events around the globe. He claims he was of a generation educated to believe that evil was a cartoonish moral concept. But then he watched one night with his daughters some of the sickening images from the chemical weapons attack in Syria 2017 that killed scores of people and many of them children. Then he writes, we watched in silence. I've covered a lot of wars, but could think of nothing to say to make any sense. Finally, one of my daughters asks, who would do that? Why would anyone do that? I, I still avoid saying evil as a reporter, but as a parent, I've grown to feel it may be important to tell children about evil as we struggle to explain cruel and incomprehensible behavior they may not see just in history, but in our own times. He goes on to say, I've, I've interviewed Romeo Dallaire, commanding officer of the UN peacekeeping forces in Rwanda, 1993 and 94, when more than 800,000 Tutsi Rwandans were slaughtered over the course of three months. Dallaire said that what happened there made him believe in evil and even a force he called the devil. He says, I've negotiated with him. I've shaken his hand. Yes, there is no doubt in my mind, and the expression of evil to me is through the devil and the devil at work and possessing human beings and turning them into machines of destruction. The expression of evil to me is through the devil and the devil at work possessing human beings and turning them into machines of destruction. I think it's so significant that he links those words together, expression of evil, the devil, destruction. Our text for this series, it, we, we started last Sunday the parable of the sower and, and the soil found in the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that the devil is present in this parable that Jesus told. We, we read Mark's version last week, and he refers to the enemy of God as Satan. Luke refers to him as the devil. And this morning, we're going to read together from Matthew, and we'll hear him described as the evil one. Now, his name may change and be used differently in different ways throughout the scripture. But here's the thing that we need to take with us today. 
His activity in the world never changes. It is always the same in a word. Destruction. Destruction. Where God brings life, the enemy brings destruction. And that word needs to grab our attention this morning. Because I'm suspicious if if you're like me and have not come face to face with the kind of evil that, that Doc Weber described or that the commander of the UN described that 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 kind of evil that possesses human beings and turns them into machines of destruction, then if we don't really grasp that, we're going to miss the supremely important lesson that I think is found in our text this morning. And we must not miss it. We can't miss it. Because it's fundamental to our understanding of what it means to be sowers of the seed. That's, That's what we're exploring here. Sowers of the seed, to be those people in this world who at the command of Jesus take the gospel, which is the seed, the gospel, which literally means good news, and we just spread it as we go through life in word and in action. So let's stand and read the parable this morning from Matthew 13. We're not going to Read the intro as we did last Sunday. Remember the disciples had asked Jesus why he taught in parables and his answer was all about the testing of the hearts of those who heard parables. We explored that a little bit to see if they were really listening. If they could believe even if they didn't have everything figured out. He described, remember, some as hearing but not understanding, seeing but not perceiving. And I suggested to you that maybe the best way to understand these words is to hear them as Jesus teaching in parables in order to conceal the truth to those whose hearts are hard before God until they come to a point of willingness to believe the truth about God, finding that with their belief, their spiritual eyes would be opened and a softening of their hardened hearts would begin to happen. And that's what we called last week the mystery of grace. So let's read together. But blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. For truly I tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see but did not see it and to hear what you hear but did not hear it. Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, The evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown on the path. The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word. But the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. 
my sisters and my brothers, this is the word of God for us. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Okay. As we know, Jesus is describing human hearts and their reception or not to the gospel. Soil along the path gets snatched by the evil one. The soil that that receives the gospel but, but withers under persecution. Don, can we put that next slide up? The four soils, the four hearts, not understanding or receiving the gospel, it gets snatched by the evil one. The heart receives the gospel with joy. The gospel begins to grow, but it withers under trouble and persecution. There is a heart that receives the gospel, begins to grow, but it's choked out by the worries of life, deceitfulness of wealth. There's the heart that receives the gospel and understands and multiplies. I want you to talk about these hearts for just a couple minutes with your neighbor. Discuss the heart responses, the different responses that Jesus has laid out. And and what is it that you think makes the difference? What is it that makes the difference? Give it a stab. Talk with the neighbor. Two minutes. Should we talk about it a little bit? It's always interesting, this, this perspective on you. This one this morning started out kind of slow. It's pretty quiet. Then you started gaining some momentum. So what have you come up with? Who wants to start us off? Just share what you think or what your neighbor thought. I want you to know I did not set out to make it the hardest neighbor question that we've ever had. It puts it all on God, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. It is hard. Good. You're wrestling with it. It's hard. I'm going to give you a simple perspective in just a minute. Just, just a perspective. A perspective. Not, I am speechless. <laughs> Not enough information to answer the question. Grace is a mystery. Doug? Sure. Not enough information. <laughs> so you're talking... If I'm understanding you, you're talking about the soil of our own personal hearts, not necessarily the soil of hearts of others, which is fine. I, I, think, I, think, they, I think they're both here, and, and we're going we're gonna to do more with that. Sure, just make it all about you, Alfredo. <laughs> no, that's, that's a legit question, though. And, and again... That is, that is the power of Scripture. There are, there are multiple levels, multiple layers, if you will, things to challenge us. And I mean, how many of us have read the Scripture for years and years and years and, and suddenly we have an epiphany? I've never seen that before. In a text where you have read it many, many times. All good stuff, all good stuff. Let me... Let me just suggest an, another element, again, for what it's worth. I, uh, I asked that question, not to make it the hardest one ever, Lee, I promise. But it seems to me that it's important because we need to understand the work of the enemy of God. 
the enemy of God is, is present, I think, to some degree in all of those responses minus the last one. We are, we are told that the evil one comes and snatches the gospel. But in the heart that receives the gospel with joy, begins to grow but withers under trouble and persecution, what might be the source of the trouble and the persecution? The enemy. The heart receives the gospel, begins to grow, but it's choked out by worries of life, deceitfulness of wealth. What might be the source of those concerns? So, and oh, and that word, that word snatched, by the way, I don't care for that word. Not that the commentators care that I don't care, but it's, uh, I think it's a little bit misleading. The Greek word that Matthew uses is a word that's found elsewhere that means to seize and to take by force. Make it mine. Personally, I, I think it's a word that creates, at least for me, an image of just ripping something away before someone even has a chance to, to, to grasp it or to look closely at it, to strive to, to understand it. Now, forgive me. When I think of snatching things, I, I think of like birds, you know, because we're told that, you know, the, the birds in, in, the, in the story come and they, they, they snatch these little seeds. A crumb here or a crumb there. Have you ever seen BBC's nature documentary called The Hunt? Oh my goodness. They do a special on raptors. Birds of prey? Oh my gosh. Oh, they snatch. It'll give you a whole new appreciation for not only those birds, but they explore just <clears throat> the hunters in the animal world. 1 <clears throat> Peter 5.8 says, Be alert and of sober mind because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to snatch, to devour. The enemy prowls around looking for someone to devour. He is looking to rip away the truth of the gospel in any heart that has received it, especially the heart that doesn't understand it. The enemy rushes in and seizes the seed before it has a chance to germinate, grow into something that might be fruitful for the kingdom. And not only that heart, but, but the heart that, that begins to, to understand the gospel and begins to live with some joy, but yet the enemy doesn't want that. The enemy doesn't want us joyful people in who God is. And so what is he going to do? Well, he's going to bring trouble and he's going to bring persecution. You, you get the point. The, the enemy is, is present in all of these things, and I'm not suggesting that he is the sole difference in how the hearts respond. But I do think for our sakes this morning, we need to understand that he is a determining factor often in what's going on in our hearts as those who are redeemed as well as the hearts who are unredeemed. Let me return again to the idea of destruction that I mentioned earlier. Many of us began the, the Immerse Bible reading this week. Gosh, 
first two chapters of Genesis are glorious. You know, awesome, creative God just spinning all of this beauty into existence by his word. And then comes chapter 3. Who shows up in chapter 3? The enemy of God. And, and that becomes the unfolding drama of Scripture until God chooses to bring the curtain down on history. Chapter 3 comes in and everything goes downhill from there. Because Satan showed up, convinced Adam and Eve that God was holding out on them, that he didn't tell them the whole truth, that there was more for them than what God had offered. And what happens as a result? Destruction. Death enters the human experience. The ultimate destruction. Their disobedience brought the destruction of their relationship with God and and shortly after that, the destruction of their son. Murder before humanity is very old at all. In John chapter 10, Jesus refers to himself as the good shepherd who does what? He lays down his life for the sheep. But he contrasts that to the thief, which I think is another reference to Satan, has not caring at all about the sheep. What does he do? He comes only to steal and kill and destroy. We have to understand that the evil one that the scripture refers to as Satan and the devil is not the character in the red jumpsuit with a pitchfork. He is, as best we can piece together in some of the Old Testament literature, he is a high order of God's creation. He is intelligent. He is crafty beyond description. He is referred to as the deceiver, and he is a liar. Jesus said, when Satan lies, he is speaking his native tongue. So we're dealing with a creature that is unbelievably powerful, unbelievably destructive. His MO is ultimately the destruction of what God has created. He does not care about anything of beauty or worth. He only cares about destroying anything that is of God who makes things beautiful and gives worth to all things. Anything that points to God, calls attention to God, reflects well upon God, Satan wants to destroy it. And I would say to you that the scene that my college professor described to us on that day is one of the ultimate scenes of destruction. The things that we see on TV that are happening around the world at the hands of evil people, those show us ultimate destruction. When human beings turn into machines of destruction, we are seeing the ultimate of the enemy's destruction upon the, uh, in, in his assault upon God's creation. 
but it always starts somewhere. Mass murderers don't wake up one day and become mass murderers for the most part. Even the most heinous, wicked people that we may imagine in our minds were someone's little boy or little girl at one point in their lives. The destruction of the enemy is is awful. But the deceit of the enemy in bringing about that destruction is oftentimes very subtle and very gentle. As sowers of the seed of the gospel, and remember, we're we're the farmers in the parable, probably started out with Jesus being the farmer. He didn't refer to himself as such. Some commentators want to think that, but either way, he passed the responsibility of sowing the seed onto those who are his followers. We simply have to understand that Satan will always oppose our sowing seeds of the gospel. He will always oppose our efforts. He will always, to the best of his insanely twisted, sick ability, he will always, he will always seek to hinder the reception of the gospel in any form, in any way that he can. The scripture gives us reason to believe that there are only two categories of people in this world. There are those who are the children of God, and there are those who are not. There is no in-between place. There's the, 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 the idea of, of neutrality in the spiritual world is a myth. Those who are not children of God, now understand me carefully when I say this, those who are not children of God are living out what, what Paul refers to in Romans 8 as a bondage to sin. That doesn't mean that they're horrible people. We all know some wonderful, delightful, precious people, good-hearted, well-intentioned, who give themselves for the sake of others who have no place for God in their lives. Paul is referring to those people as well. If a person's life does not revolve around God made available to us through His Son, Jesus, then we are those people or they are those people who are living for themselves. That's what living in bondage to sin is all about. Persons who profess Christ as Savior, they mysteriously, again, according to Paul in Romans 8, become children of God. They're no longer obligated to live for themselves because of bondage to sin. Doesn't mean that they don't. Doesn't mean that we don't. But, but the, the bondage has been broken. That's why for some people who just go along living a troubled free life, they recognize their need for a Savior, and when they make a commitment to follow Jesus... Literally all hell breaks loose in their lives. Why is that? Because they moved from a camp where Satan really didn't care to a camp where now suddenly, oh, he cares. 
because those who have become children of the light now have that light in them and they become people who want to live out that life. And again, Satan's MO is to destroy and to impair all that shines any kind of light positively on, on who God is. All right. Gosh, is it really quarter to 11? Given all of this, let me send you with two important, I think, two, maybe three important application points this morning. Okay. I've said a lot about the destructive nature of Satan, his hatred of God, his hatred of the people of God, his power to destroy, to wreak havoc. All of that said, it's essential to remember this. Satan is not all-powerful, nor is he present everywhere. Nor is he immortal, as Shep referred to God this morning. By the way, great theology in your home there, Laura, Jason. Satan is not the opposite of God. We're not talking a yin-yang thing. We're not talking an equal but opposing force to God. Satan is a created being. 17th century Puritan um, William Gurnall said it like this. He liked to encourage believers to hold fast to the assurance that God is watching Satan's every move and will not let him have the final victory. He wrote this, When God says, stay, Satan must stand like a dog by the table while the saints feast on God's comfort. He does not dare to snatch even a tidbit, for the master's eye is always upon him. Be encouraged by books like like Job, the first two chapters of Job, as, as difficult as that is sometimes to, to understand the purposes of God in allowing Satan to wreak havoc on the life of a man who, who apparently loved him and served him. Yet we see that drama that unfolds in heaven that Job never knows about, where Satan doesn't lay a finger on Job apart from the permission of God. That can be a tremendous source of strength and and peace and comfort to us as God's people. So, remember, we need to understand the presence of the enemy in this, this life that we are called to. We need to understand the presence of the enemy who wants to oppress our own hearts and make us unfruitful. He certainly wants to discourage any efforts that we might have to want to sow seeds and help others see the greatness and the grace and the love of our God. But he is not the equal of God on the dark side. He is a created being. He is not everywhere all the time. He is limited, and he serves at the permission of God, if I can say it that way. Second thing that that we need to take home with us, and we'll do more with this one together, prayer. Brothers and sisters, prayer is imperative. 
Think of Jesus' words when he taught his followers to pray. What did he say? Lead us not. Father, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from, the best translation there is, the evil one. Jesus, who had just, according to Matthew's chronology, spent significant time in the desert being tested by the evil one. Led there by the Spirit of God, we understand that God is going to test us. He's he's going to mold and shape our hearts. The writer of Hebrews tells us that, that a father who doesn't discipline as in shape and mold and and create difficult situations for their children, well, they don't really love their children. God loves his children. And so so he creates those times of testing. Jesus is, is, is exhorting his followers and us. Pray that the Father, in his testing of your life, will not allow you to come to that place where you jettison your faith and reject it all because the pressure that the enemy is applying is too difficult. We're going to be winsome people and effective in our sowing efforts. We've got to pray. We've got to pray. Pray for ourselves. Pray for others. Pray for our own hearts that the soil of, of our heart doesn't get crusty. If the soil of our heart doesn't get choked out by the concerns and the worries of the world, prayer for those whose hearts need to be receptive to the truth of the gospel. Praise team, come on up, and I'll just say a couple more words as you come. Brothers and sisters, we must remember that if we're going to be people who are fruitful, people who who live out the life of the farmer who sows seeds. We said last week that the condition of the soil in others' hearts is not our concern. That's still true. We sow, and we just trust God to be doing his mysterious work of grace in the lives of people. And if he involves us at a deeper level, then we trust him to give us wisdom and and knowledge and how to, to walk with that person and converse with that person and challenge that person But the condition of the soil in our hearts, that is our responsibility. And so, we want to be a people who are praying and faithfully asking God, by His grace, keep the soil of my heart soft and receptive to who you are and to who you want me to be. And Alfredo, if I can say this, when we make that our daily prayer, I think the worry about which person we are begins to kind of fade into the distance because our heart's desire is for him to be at work in our hearts, cultivating, tilling the soil, and making it the kind of soil that's going to be fruitful to his great glory. Amen? Amen.